0: Stay hungry. Stay foolish.
1: So now on the innovation show, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Jeff Chrysler, co-author of the awesome dollars and cents with Dan Ariely, Jeff, I'm going to let you give your own introduction because you have such a great background, a polymath in the true sense of a polymath and it's something we celebrate on this show the whole time. So if you wouldn't mind, before we go into the background of the book and the themes you touch on, it'd be great to get a bit of a background on you, Jeff.
0: Sure. Uh, well, I love the term polymath. It sounds like a mathematician who has sex with other mathematicians, <laughs> but also other scientists and, and anyone in the field of study. Uh, I have a atypical background, maybe for your polymath fans, it's, it's familiar, I went to some good schools here in the States, uh, including um, Princeton and Virginia Law School, University of Virginia Law School, Thomas Jefferson School. And I was sort of on that track. And then I took a detour and I became a stand-up comedian. And I focused on political comedy. I won uh, the Bill Hicks Spirit Award, which I bet a lot of your listeners know Bill Hicks. It was a lot to live up to. Uh, And I journeyed down that road for a while. Then I Got interest from someone to say, hey, do you want to write a humor column about business and finance? And I said, no. And then they said, it will pay. And I said, yes. So I learned about business and finance. I I had a degree in economics from Princeton, so I sort of knew what I was talking about a little bit. From the column, then I got an opportunity. Someone approached me to see if I wanted to write a book. Uh, That turned into my first book, which is called Get Rich Cheating, which was a satire of everything that's gone wrong in the world, Uh, our America's current president was well re- represented in that book that came out in 2009. Uh, it was about you know, steroid use and about political cheating and business cheating and Hollywood. And uh, it was a lot of fun to write. My co-author, Dan Ariely, who wrote the book *Predictably Irrational and is, teaches business at Duke University here in the States, he got a copy of my book, invited me to come down and lecture to his class. And my lectures at the time were sort of satirical. It was, you know, tongue in cheek. I was basically pro cheating to make a point about ethics and morality. <laughs> and he he would introduce me, and he wouldn't say here's a comedian. He wouldn't say here's something funny and not true. He'd just say this guy has unique wealth building ideas. And I would go and I'd, you know, say cost benefit analysis. There's no cost to get it to cheating, right? No one has ever caught. One <laughs> guy, Bernie Madoff, everyone else gets off, and you make millions. And I would advocate for this and talk about how you could do it. And inevitably someone would stop me about 20 minutes in and say, Are you full of crap? And I would put it to the class. And you know, these Duke business students, and Duke is, you know, a top 10 business school here, probably about a third to a half of them would sort of agree, be like, Yeah, you make a good point. And that was fascinating to me to sort of see my intuition confirmed that even the smartest among us, the most highly trained, something about money messes with our heads. And in that case, it makes us consider unethical or immoral actions, Um, and then there's so many more things it does. And Dan, being sort of a brilliant leader in the field of behavioral economics and behavioral science, we worked together on a few projects. He, at one point, said, you want to write this book? Uh, And it was about the psychology of money, basically, and what became dollars and cents. And we took it on. I learned so much about the field, I kind of gave myself a crash master's degree, and It just really opened my eyes to how money does mess with our head, how these human uh, biases, how our human nature is so at play, our emotions are so at play, even in the most sort of rational decisions about money and numbers. Um, And of course, it plays out beyond money. uh, But here we are. So we wrote the book, and now uh, I'm at a stage where I sort of am hoping to evangelicalize a little about uh, the lessons that I learned and that we share in the book.
1: The polymath thing is really interesting to me, and your background, and really interesting that the Duke students really got it and that Dan got it because you have a different lens to look at this. And everybody in the world is taught through the same lens, usually, and they all end up making the same decisions, thinking the same, lacking critical thinking. While well, you come and you're a comedian, and your TV work, and your writing all add a different lens and i think that's what makes this so unique and i think that's what your real skill has come across certainly to me you demystify so many of the biases and so many of the myths and so many of the things that we are blind to that you make them so clear to us and you do that through humor but what i found really interesting was everybody's talking about cryptocurrencies digital currencies bitcoin etc etc but nobody's looking at the real psychology behind money and you've done that brilliantly here and you have framed this really well in the book money is the top reason for divorce number one cause of stress in Americans and I would wager worldwide people are, are worse at all kinds of problem-solving when they have money problems in their mind I'd love Jeff if you would tell us a little bit about some of the biases that we suffer from for example one of the biggest ones you talk about is opportunity cost
0: well first thank you for We did a good job of making it relatable. I think that's why Dan wanted to work with me and whether it's uses of humor or storytelling. I have found throughout my career that uh, topics that people find complex, whether it's politics or it's business or money or topics that are stressful in the same way, using stories and humor and just to help people relate to it uh, is an effective way to get them to to understand so i appreciate that 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 came across that was our intention Uh, as far as opportunity costs uh, you know opportunity costs essentially are the costs that come when we do make a spending decision right it's it's everything else that we could spend our money on you know a lot of financial literacy courses they talk about like buying your five dollar latte every day like don't buy five dollar coffee you know what don't worry about the five dollar coffee but as an example since that's a common one The question of opportunity cost is what else could you spend that $5 on now and any time in the future? The beautiful thing about money is that it is fungible and it is divisible and it can be used for anything at any time. Right. That $5 now can instead of being a coffee, it could be, you know. Uh, five packs of gum it could be a little drip in the bucket of your retirement savings it it could be lottery tickets it can be absolutely anything and that's what's amazing about money and allowed money to really change the way that that society evolves because we wouldn't be able to save if we didn't have money and just had to like store things we'd just be bartering Um, but the fact that you can think about anything and use money for anything is really what the challenge is because as much as we should think about opportunity costs we should think about everything else we can spend that money on that's just really overwhelming right that that's unrealistic to sit with every financial decision big and small and wonder oh what else could i do with this that's it's crippling so given that that isn't what we do right we don't think about opportunity costs and our you know, hope in the book and in the talks I give and in all the work that Dan does and everything else is to get us a little closer to thinking about opportunity costs or at least to recognize these biases, these things that take us away from opportunity costs. Um, and it's really been amazing to me to, to see how little we do think about opportunity costs, even when we should. Uh, Dan did an experiment where he went to a car dealership and he asked people who are about to spend $30,000 on a Toyota, you know, what else could you spend $30,000 on? And they couldn't come up with an answer, right? You know, by all means, they should have said, oh, that would be, you know, three really nice vacations, or it would be, you know, more of a down payment on a house, or it would be half a year less working when I approach retirement, something like that. They couldn't come up with anything. And when pressed, the most they could do is say, well, if I didn't spend this money on a Toyota, I could spend it on a Honda. So they weren't really thinking about all the opportunity costs. Sorry about that ring. No worries,
1: man. Do you want to Um, get it?
0: No, no, it's my fax machine. <laughs> okay, I still cool. have a fax machine because I'm 300 years old. Anyway, so they were they, they uh so at the dealership they weren't thinking about the opportunity costs, and we weren't thinking about the opportunity costs, and and really the opportunity costs are how you should think about money. But then we have all of these biases, things like uh, you know sale prices and and special deals um, and our own sort of preconceived notions, and all the things that we go on and cover in the book that take us away that that lead us astray. Um, from finding what that real opportunity costs and and ultimately opportunity costs is what we commonly call value right the value of a purchase is really like deciding is it worth giving up all these other things it could be to get this now um and that's what we should figure out but that's not what we do because it's hard to do and because we have these outside signals that that don't let us get to it
1: one of the things yeah. you talk about r- related to so opportunity cost is relativity so we always frame the cost of something based on the, pr- the price so you talk about that with the with the car for example you might get an upgrade you might get leather seats and stuff like that it'd be great to let our audience know a little bit about that
0: sure well the challenge with money and, and valuing things is that really like how do we have any sense of what something should be worth like how do we know what a like a cup of uh, coffee is worth or how do we know what a house is worth how do you put a monetary figure on, in, in a vacuum right? the truth is we we can't possibly figure that out so what we end up doing is we end up comparing that price to other prices typically you know what uh, we maybe have paid for a house or a coke in the past or or in the case of relativity we create categories like there is the coca-cola now and there's a coca-cola on sale uh, the, there's, uh, you know, I use the example of a sweater in the book. There's, a um, hundred dollar sweater that's been marked down to $60, right? In that case, that one item has created two things to compare a hundred dollar sweater and a $60 sweater. And compared to that hundred dollar sweater, the $60 sweater seems like a great deal because if you just were to walk up to a sweater and look at it, how would you have any sense of what you should pay for? Like, how do you judge? Is it how long it's going to last? Is it how warm? Is it how cool I'm going to look in it? So you've created these two different items to compare them to, and, and relativity is looking at the relative value. Um, you know, it comes up in a lot of senses. The most common is in sales. Right? People always ask me, particularly you know, now when recording this after uh, the holidays, like, what about sales? Like, isn't it always great to get stuff on sale? Well, no, it, it shouldn't matter if it's on sale. You're never saving that $40, right? That $100 sweater doesn't exist. What you should be thinking about is, should I spend $60 on it? But because we're caught up in relativity and we think about like how much we are not spending instead of how much we are spending, that tricks us and takes us further away from really considering those opportunity costs. Um, Another way it comes up is often in percentages. We'll ask if you are at a, a store and you're buying like a stack of printer paper and it costs $15 and the clerk tells you that down the street is another store that they can sell the same thing for $5. Most people would walk down the street to save $10. But if you're in a furniture store and you're buying a, a sofa for $1,015 and the clerk says down the street it's available for $1,005, most of us would not walk down the street to save that $10 because that doesn't seem like a big deal. When essentially the question is the same thing. Would you walk down the street for $10? But we get caught up in this relativity and we think, oh, well, it's just you know a tiny little percentage of a big thing. When... Really money is that ten dollars is ten dollars, no matter whether it comes out of a thousand or it comes out of fifteen you know the The example that I think about a lot, maybe this time in my life or my neighbors is um about home renovation like I live on a street, a lot of people are always doing work on their houses. it's annoying, but you know people spend two hundred thousand dollars, let's say on a home renovation, and I'll have a contractor come up to them at some point in the process and say, "Hey, you know for an extra twenty thousand dollars, I can get you something uh, Italian right." you know, you don't know what it is. And you're like, sure. What's the big deal? It's a, t- it's a drop in the bucket. The same people will go to the grocery store and they'll spend, you know, 10 minutes every day trying to decide if they should get the organic tomatoes that cost 10 cents more than the regular tomatoes. Right? A-, a lifetime of buying tomatoes is not going to make up for that $20,000, <laughs> but because it's like a bigger percent and because it seems like a relatively not a big deal, we don't think about it. And, you know, that's a- another thing to touch on. A challenge is often the big expenditures are the ones where we don't, Spend a lot of time thinking about little ones are the ones where we obsess and you know, Dan and I say and tell people like don't obsess over the 10 cents on the organic tomatoes or the extra little dollar on your five dollar coffee obsess over the million dollar home or the $30,000 car like do think about the big ones and human nature tends to go the other way uh, because those big expenditures are hard to wrap our head like what's something Italian, right? What's you know, how do you value that? Um, We tend to make those decisions more quickly and more rashly.
1: Yeah, and we'll come to that because uh, you do a beautiful job of uh, talking about language and the importance of language as well later on. But you, you touched on something there, it's the sales point. And you give a great analogy of Aunt Susan. I'm doing air quotes here Aunt Susan mm-hmm. and the JCPenney CEO Ron Johnson losing his job over clearing up pricing. I'd love to share that because this shows how we fall for these tricks all the time.
0: Right. So, you know, a lot of these biases are about emotion how emotion comes into play for us when we're spending uh, money or thinking about saving money. Uh, And oftentimes we don't acknowledge that emotion does play a big role, but we should. And in particular, you saw it in the story of JCPenney. JCPenney is this uh, retailer that sells typically clothes, and they used to have a policy where they would always have high prices, but have tons of different types of sales. You, know, you could cut out coupons from your magazine or the newspaper. You go and hunt or buy two for one, and it almost became a, a game. Like everything that was on sale, there was no price that was just a price. Everything in J.C. Penney had a sale price, and people loved it. And this new CEO was hired because J.C. Penny wasn't doing well, and the CEO's name was Ron Johnson, and he came in and said, "You know what? Like instead of treating our uh, customers like you know they're toddlers and giving them this game let's just be honest let's let's give them what he called fair and square pricing and the fair and square pricing was just the listing the price where it would have ended up after all the sales or in line with the competitors instead of inflating it and then and then cutting it uh just giving them the straight price he's like oh you know this is just the right thing to do what ended up happening is the customers revolted Right? They hated it. They couldn't stand the fact that they weren't getting sales. They thought they were now paying more or they just didn't like the experience. It wasn't as emotionally satisfying to find that sale and say to themselves, I'm saving $40. So customers left. The company started tanking. They ended up firing Ron Johnson. They put in uh, a new CEO who reinstated all this sales gimmick, uh, and the company's fortunes turned back around. I mean, I don't think they're doing great, but like they, they bounced back. You know, it seems rational, right? If, if you ask someone in a moment of calm, do you want to have to hunt and peck for a bunch of sales or do you want to just know what something costs? We would probably say, just tell us what it costs. Then we get in that moment and, you know, we light up. We have a little dopamine rush when we feel like we've accomplished something. Oh my gosh, you know, I went and I, I saved $200 today. Well, yeah, you also spent $700, but it's that <laughs> saving that feels good, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the things you, you link to this as well is the idea of, owning property. So you give the great analogy of Tom and Rachel and selling their house and, and the overvaluing we have with things that we've put a lot of time into or things we own that we're selling on. We overvalue.
0: Sure. I mean, there's a, something called the endowment effect, which is basically like when you own something, uh, and you become again, emotionally attached or invested in it, you tend to think it's worth more than anybody else does, uh, and you know, in some ways, it makes sense when you think about selling something. You always want to sell high, and a buyer wants to buy low. But it, it's more than just wanting to like maximize the sale. It's really a sense of what you think the value of something is. I mean, there are experiments where, literally, someone like I think it was for a coffee mug. Uh, if someone held a coffee mug for five minutes, they uh, were were uh, would require more payment from someone else to sell it than if they just like were told here, how much would you sell this mug for if it was yours? Just like the, the act of holding it. Um, and, and it makes you sort of think about that typical, um, you know, the drug dealer approach, that old cartoon character who was like, Hey kid, first one's free, right? Get them addicted. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I, I love to think about, uh, you know, I get a lot of solicitations for free, Um, cable networks like HBO. And I love to think of like an HBO executive, like say, kid, you know, watch a a free month of movies. It's on us. And then (laughs) you get addicted. Ikea is a, an international brand. I'm sure your listeners know Ikea. Uh, and they're typically a lot of their furniture is stuff that you buy and you build at home and there are studies showing that like people just value a bookshelf no matter how poorly made it is. And no matter how much it falls apart, if they've made it themselves, they value it more, than something that didn't make themselves um and it's it's fascinating uh, and, and you know it, it again affects like our ability to value something um you know in the home sales like a lot of times people like get a home and they add their personal touches and they put around right like their pictures of their family and then they try to sell it and when they are selling it they think about all the amazing things that have happened oh this is where you know little joey had his first steps and over here is you know where you know, Samantha, like, learned to ride a bike, and like, that has all that emotional impact, like, put into the value of it for them. But somebody walking into an open house doesn't see that. They see, oh, like, they haven't cleaned over here. Or they see the, the flaws. And, um, you know, it's important to recognize that in how we approach things that, that stuff we have and are connected to, we're, of course, going to value more than those that don't have those connections.
1: Yeah. I love that the IKEA effect, you call it, where you, you get attached to, you, You build this chair and it takes ages and you've a load of spare pieces left over, but because you put all the time and effort in, you talk about as well, loss aversion and the endowment effect is really deeply connected with loss aversion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and loss aversion for those that don't know, is the idea that we feel the pain of a loss more than the equal pleasure we get from a gain. If you lose $10, you'd have to gain $20 to sort of even out that feeling. Uh, and, and what that makes us do is, like, we are very, like, more inclined to try to avoid losses than we are to pursue gains. Um, this comes out a lot, people who talk to those that invest in stocks and in the market. Uh, you know, we tend to make decisions when we're investing that are about not having losses as opposed to perhaps pursuing gains because we feel that more strongly. Um, even in something outside of the financial world, uh, when it comes to weight loss, you know, people that are are trying to lose weight when they gain weight, which is in this case, the reverse, it's when they they're gaining weight is actually a loss in this case. But when they, when they do poorly, let's put it that way, they feel worse than when they do well. And they're more likely to give up on days that they do poorly um, because of that stronger emotional pull. Um, so when it comes to finances, we tend to be making decisions that are, are more about, you know, not losing money. Um, and again, the, like I said, the endowment effect sort of works with that. Like, on the one hand, we feel that, that this house has more value than others do, and then we're you know less willing to give it up because we're going to lose that value. And it sort of they work together to, to heighten that gap between how we uh, would value something and how a potential purchaser were in the case of, of a home sale.
1: And, and you talk about this this is a nice segue for language because you talk about this where marketers use this to their advantage the whole time for for example a burger is 95 percent fat free not five percent fat uh, it'd be great exactly. if you talk us a little bit through that
0: yeah well it, it's uh oftentimes about framing things my personal bugaboo when it comes to language right now is the word artisanal uh i feel like Everything is artisanal. I don't know if that's happening around the world or it's just an American phenomenon.
1: But Craft as well. Craft, craft is everywhere.
0: So same thing. It's another word for artisanal. I'm surprised it's not craft, artisanal, <laughs> handmade. There are a few things that play with language. One is that I think sometimes a long description it gives us that endowment effect because we sort of feel like we've spent a lot of time. We've invested a lot of sunk costs into listening to the description or something. But it, it also it makes us think that more effort has gone into something, right? Something artisanal suggests that there's been effort made to create this item. Uh, you know, a, a hamburger that's you know described um, by the ben- the positive attributes of it and how long it was cooked and where all the ingredients came from and and the story behind you know Bessie the cow. Like that makes us think that more effort has gone into creating that. And the reason why that matters is because Again, when we can't value what something's worth, we often rely upon guessing how much effort it went into it, like how much you know, time someone took to create this thing, and that will be how we'll assess the value. Uh, you know, There are studies showing if uh, a locksmith comes to open up your door, people are more likely to pay uh, or they pay more to the locksmith that takes an hour and fumbles around and breaks things and goes back and forth to his or her truck uh, than the locksmith that opens it up in one minute even though the question is should be how much is it worth for me to get in my house not how long did that person take um, the same with like data recovery on a computer if you want to bring your computer to someone who gets wiped out uh, if they fix it in an hour you're gonna want to pay them less than if they take a week to fix it just because like the only way we can assess that value is by what we think is the effort and you know it's it's a little silly <laughs> if, when you really stop to think about it. Um, but that's what happens. And, and that's uh, you know another way we go away from the opportunity costs is we think about the effort. And language is a great way to convey that effort um when you start talking about all of the you know work that goes into something. I mean, you go to expensive restaurants, and you know half of the cost is is him hiring a writer to do the menu uh, and and add all this flowery language. Um, so that, those are a couple things that language does. Uh, you know, language is, you know, I, I even outside of behavioral science, um, it's very powerful and it can it can play on your emotions and it can just sort of it, it'll often take you where it wants you to go. Um you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier one of the things that attracted me to behavioral science when I got into it is it is it sort of reconfirmed some of the assumptions I had and it provided scientific backing to it. And the studies that have been done about language have really proven that to be the case. And the 95% fat free instead of 5% fat is another example like language tends to focus on the positive attributes of something rather than the negative attributes because that then makes us feel good about it and then we're more willing to pay for it.
1: Yeah and you touched on this really important point because you talk about fairness and effort and stuff like the surge pricing from an Uber. Or when Coca-Cola were going to hike the price up on warm weather days, for example, It'd great if you tell us a little bit about that because we've a lot of listeners who would own internet companies, and the internet has a really interesting twist in this as well, which will help them guide themselves on pricing, but also the language they use around their product.
0: You know when it comes to effort and fairness, and really effort is oftentimes a shorthand for fairness for those of us that are trying to evaluate price, it's the effort that we see. And the only way we could judge effort is if we're aware of it. If we see that locksmith fumbling at things or we know that the data recovery person took a week to do it. And one of the challenges is for those industries that, you know, that effort isn't clear. You know, there's not a transparency to the effort. Uh, and the Internet is a great place. You, you hire a, a writer off the Internet speaking personally. Um, how do you have any idea how long it took them? And you don't. Uh, you know, you think about Google right in Google you go and search for something and you you enter a term and you press a button and within like a second they return 400,000 results right now that seems like it took no effort at all because it's hard to really understand what goes into that now many companies and and other industries understand that in order to like trigger this bias of ours in order to sort of convey that effort whether it's you know the right way or not for people to assess value but whether to trigger that requires showing the effort requires some transparency. Uh, you know, Kayak, uh, I think it's an international brand, but it's, it's a, a website for searching for airfare and travel items. Uh, you enter your destination, your dates, and then they sort of go through a process where they show you all, you know, they spin through and you see like a, a thousand airlines listed and they slowly eliminate them. And it takes a minute. There's a progress bar, you know, progress bars are a big innovation. Yeah. So essentially they, they try to show you all the things they're doing, all the effort they're making, and you value that. Um, there's a website that was showing you not just it was a dating website and it wouldn't just show you you know your 20 ideal matches it would also show you the hundred people that you didn't match with to I show how much effort was made uh you know the the city of Boston in uh, in uh, Massachusetts here in America they. It's a big city and the winter they get a lot of potholes in their street and people would see, you know, three potholes on their street, call them up and say, come fix these. And they wouldn't fix them for, you know, weeks and they would complain. So the city of Boston created a a website where people could see all the thousands of potholes in the city and see that every day, you know, 25 of them were getting fixed. And it showed the effort. And even if the three on their street weren't getting fixed, suddenly they valued their tax dollars and they valued their government's effort a little bit higher. Um, So – You know, finding a way to show that effort can really make a difference. Now, people could, you know, manipulate that, Uh, you know, they could sort of either show the true effort or they could do things like like I always sort of pick on consulting firms um, because I know a lot of people who work in consulting and, uh, you know we think about and we use this example in the book, you know, you, you hire a consulting firm to do a project and at the end of the project, you know, they present, you know, a, a 200 slide PowerPoint presentation and the first hundred slides are about like what meal they had on the flight out there. And, you know, all you care about, I care about is the last slide, like the advice which is usually like fire a third of your company, <laughs> um, but they go through this whole thing cause it shows, Oh my gosh, so much effort. And then they charge, you know, a hundred, 200, whatever, a ton of money, thousands of dollars. Um, because it looks like a lot of effort. Uh, so you know, for you know, the, the startups, as you mentioned out there, finding a way to sort of convey the value of what they do is important. Um, there are a lot of ways to do it, and that's probably a topic for another podcast. You know, explain to people whether it's you know, like marketing. The value is you, know, you get higher notoriety and you're going to sell more of your widgets, whatever. But one way is to show sort of the, what goes into creating this. Um, sometimes it's about the effort to do a particular task or project, and sometimes it's about the knowledge. Um, you know the the final sort of thought for now on this, you know and this comes from also my my place as like a writer and speaker and person who I've sort of conveyed all this knowledge, and it's you know maybe a task doesn't take me you know two years, it takes me a week to do, but it's based upon what i've what I've learned. Um, the The story that resonated for me, and that's also in the book, is about this legend that uh, Pablo Picasso was sitting in a park, and a woman came up to him, him and said, oh my gosh, you're, you're Pablo Picasso. Would you paint my portrait? And I don't do very good Pablo Picasso, but let's assume Pablo <laughs> Picasso said, said, "Sure, I'll uh, I'll paint your portrait." This is terrible, but I'm going to stick with it.
1: Oh. I didn't know he's from India, man. Is he from? No, India? <laughs> no, this is like Italian. I don't. And he's not from. It
0: doesn't. It doesn't matter. I've made this choice, and I'm stuck okay, with it.
1: go ahead, man. Sure, I'll paint your portrait,
0: <laughs> and then I'll make a pizza for you. I'll pay, this is very terribly offensive. So I'm obviously not going to get any calls from Italy or <laughs> no, India or any no, other country. No, no. Says, "Sure, I'll do your portrait." The woman says, oh, thank you so much. And, and Pablo Picasso looks at the woman for you know a minute, uh, you know, thinks about it, and then with a single brushstroke, creates a, a perfect portrait of her, hands it over. And she says, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. You've captured my essence. This is everything I feel and everything that I think. It's so incredible. What do I owe you? And he says, oh, you owe me $5,000. And she says, what? It only took you like a minute. Like, that's not fair. It took you no effort at all. And he says, no, no, no. It took me a lifetime plus one minute. And there at the end, he became Jackie Mason a little bit, which I think is inappropriate also. <laughs> you nailed it,
1: man. And it, the, the essence of that story holds true that people don't Thank value you. knowledge that you right. built up over years. When I read that, I wondered, is it an envy or is it just because they can't see the effort that was put in?
0: Despite everything I've learned in my life, I like to still think that people are good at heart. So I will say my belief is that it is not an envy. It's the fact that they just can't value it. Right. I mean, like, think about if you're handed a portrait of yourself made by Pablo Picasso, like, how do you possibly value what that's worth? Like, that could be anything, right? It could be 20 bucks because he's feeling kind that day. It it could be, you know, price it millions of dollars and original Picasso. like, how do you possibly wrap your head around what's that worth? Um, Same with like data recovery. You know, how do you figure that out? Now, you know, what you should do, and and, and art is a uniquely special thing, but like data work, you should think, okay, what's it worth to me to get all this data on my computer back? Like, if I don't get it back, I'd have to, you know, go and recreate it and spend months doing it so it's worth whatever that is. Um, But again, we just don't, we just don't do that. Um, And it's, it's a real challenge. It's why, you know, on the flip side, we react so strongly to things that are not fair. Right? like the example of uh, umbrella prices when it's raining. You have a local store that sells umbrellas for $5, but suddenly there's a downpour and they sell them for 10 We think, oh my God, that's totally not fair because we know that it took no extra effort on their poor. It, t- it took nothing for them to like suddenly raise it to $10, so it seems unfair. Uh, but we can't like do that same assessment on certain things like art um, or locksmiths. Uh, or even, you know, homes and meals and, and movies, right? It's just, it's hard to do that. So we fall onto these other little tricks
1: that, for example, right? So let's go back to the startup or the founder who creates a killer product. Let's say it's Apple and the iPad, for example, and the product does not exist in the market. So therefore, where do you price it? And you give the great example of the other phenomenon, which is anchoring.
0: You know, there's a story of Steve jobs. When he introduced the iPhone and it basically like, you know, he does his Steve Jobs thing where he's on stage and his turtleneck and his whole person gets everyone excited about this product that's coming out and this amazing new thing. And you sit there and you watch it like, how do you figure out what an iPhone is worth? Like all of a sudden, you know, it's a phone, but now you can expand it with your fingers and you can pinch with your fingers and you can scroll and look at the Internet and all these things. So how do you know what that's worth? And Steve Jobs says it's worth $600. Yay! Great. Like or you know, they they told us it should be worth $900, but we're selling it for $600. And not only that, 2 weeks later, they actually said, "You know what? we Change our mind, we're going to sell it for $400." So all of a sudden, you've sort of gone back to that relativity, right? You've created three different versions of the iPhone, a 900, 600, and 400. So the $400 seems like a a bargain. And at the same time, you know, when he first mentions that nine hundred dollar thing that anchors in our mind what that price should be. Anchoring is essentially the idea that, you know, sort of the the first price that we see for something has a really strong pull. It has an outsized pull and, and we sort of connect to that price and it's hard for us to get far away from it. You go to a, a car dealership and, you know, they say this car is supposed to be $30,000. Well, it's going to be hard for you to ever to, to say, well, it should only be $15,000. And you might feel like, oh, if I get it for 27000 that's that's a pretty good deal because you're, you're only getting so far away from that anchor of, of $30,000. And the thing that I really was struck by uh, that's related to anchoring was the idea that the, the anchor often doesn't even have to be relevant. If you will, there's there's this thing called uh, arbitrary coherence, which which Dan and some others studied, which basically looked at some products that were hard to price, right? Like an obscure wine, a box of chocolates. What they did is they said to people, okay, tell us the last two numbers on your social social, of your social security number. So people would have eighteen or they'd have ninety four, right, as their last two digits in their number. And so they said those numbers, and then they said, okay, see those numbers now. Would you pay that amount for these products? And if not, what would you pay? And inevitably, people who had high last two numbers, who had this randomly assigned number that were high, would pay more for all of these products than those that had low randomly assigned numbers. And the point being, just having a number associated with a product made us then be more drawn to it magnetically or like an anchor. I think anchor is the perfect term, which is why they use it. And it's, you know, again, it's a real challenge when we go into some situation where we don't have any idea what the price is, That first price we see is dramatically overweight listing prices. There was a study I think we use in the book about like home listing prices in in a town called Tucson, Arizona, and even, you know, real estate professionals who should know what things are worth. They were affected by the listing price, right? A higher listing price made them think it, they should pay more for it. Um, and it just was it's, a, it's just a number. Uh, and and we can we can have this affect us in so many ways, and and marketers, uh, for better or worse, uh, can either take advantage of that or can use it to their benefit, depending on your perspective. You know, for for the consumers in us, um, we should watch that they don't take advantage of us, and for the developers, we should be aware that it's a good tool.
1: We talked about startups and. You know, fintech businesses, et cetera. A lot of companies like that listen to the show. The internet is making user experience better and better. You talked about Google giving us searches really easily. Amazon, for example, one of their first patents was one click technology. There's a reason behind all this because this leads to thoughtless purchasing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And what it does is it takes advantage of our aversion to pain. Uh, And that's because there is an actual pain what that comes when we pay for things, when we pay for things that the stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain does. And typically like pain has an evolutionary purpose, right? It teaches us to pay attention to something. You put your hand on a stove, you should look at your hand and move it off the stove or you have a, a knee that gets you know, broken. You should feel that pain and look at your knee and go get it taken care of. Um, so when it comes to payment, when we feel that pain, when we hand over a $20 bill, like it, it causes this pain, and we should then stop and be thinking, "Oh my gosh, what's going on? Should I do this? Is this is a good decision." But what ends up happening, and, and technology particularly plays a role, is that instead of like feeling that pain, we numb ourselves to the pain. You know, we put up sort of walls that prevent us from feeling that pain. Um, automatic payment, uh, credit cards, and now technology—they all make it so we're less aware of that pain. Oh, excuse me. Well, yeah, we're less aware of the payment. So therefore, we don't really feel the pain of the payment, and therefore we don't stop and think about it. And going back to what we said at the beginning, we don't assess the opportunity costs. Uh, there are studies that show when people use credit cards versus cash, they spend more, they tip more, and they're more likely to forget how much they've spent. Uh, you know, I often ask people, you know, do you use credit cards? Yes. Does anybody here, you know, have any idea how much money we'll have or what their credit card will be at the end of the month? And almost nobody knows, right? It's always a surprise to a certain extent. Um, it's because like we're not really aware when we spend money on a credit card, we, we forget about it. Um, and, and there's even studies that show that that just this the thought of credit cards, like putting out paraphernalia, like a MasterCard, a Visa logo, and the machines that do it, even that has the same effect. People will spend more, tip more, and be more likely to forget about it. It's not as strong as if they use it, but it's like we're Pavlovian and it makes us like like fall into this habit. Um and it's because we don't feel that pain of paying. And you know technology in Fintech, uh, you know there's great promise in Fintech, ones that you know applications and developments um, and, and little apps that, that can help people save more, that can help them plan for you know special trips or retirement. There's great promise, but also a lot of Fintech or the one that, that's more sort of known. It, it's designed to help us spend easier. It's promoted as, you know, making your life easier. Amazon has a store where you can just go in and grab stuff off the shelf and walk out and you don't ever look at the price. It just gets sent to your credit card like that. How easy is that? You don't have to wait in line. Yay. Well, then you don't think about the price and you don't think about whether or not you should do that. Um, The same with things like Apple Pay and eventually they'll be like you just blink and it goes to your credit card. Um, All these things make it so that we don't stop and think we don't feel that payment. So we don't stop. To think about whether or not it's a good decision. We don't think about the opportunity cost. So, you know, I always tell people when you're, you know, thinking about the latest technology and the thing that says how your life is going to be so much easier, before you adopt it, to stop and think, well, is it really easier or is it better? Um, And it tends to be a lot that, that a lot of the fintech tends to be about spending things more easily, not about spending them more wisely. And that's because what they tend to do is eliminate that pain of paying. I should say for people developing stuff, that isn't true for all fintech, but you know the, the ones that are sort of supported by the, the big uh, financial interests tend to lean that way.
1: Absolutely. And it'd be great to touch on some solutions, for example, retirement, something that a lot of us kick the can down the road. And you talk about the marshmallow effect, for example, or the marshmallow test. It'd be great to touch on that. So some of the solutions, because I, I was really attracted to the book from the problems perspective because... They're the same problems we see in business in innovation. They're the same biases that we have, and this mental accounting we do all the time we're totally oblivious to, or or maybe we just pretend we are. We just close our eyes to it.
0: Well, retirement is is an important problem, and it, it uniquely touches on many things uh, that are have to do with the psychology, money, and behavioral economics. I mean, it's you know consider at the beginning I talked about how hard it is to value something, the price of something. I mean, how do you really? Estimate how much money you should save for retirement, right? You have to think about how long you're going to live, how long you're going to work, what your standard of living will be then. Are you going to have health problems? Like, What's the market going to do to find all these? It's just so hard to think about it. So we just don't want to think about it. And that lends us then or leads us then to sort of fall into these other little traps. Um, when it comes to retirement, you know, one of the big things that plays in is self-control. You mentioned the marshmallow test, this famous test where you know they, they put a, a kid in a room with a, with a marshmallow on the plate. And they say if you wait you know, 10 minutes or whatever the number was to let's say 10 minutes, uh, we'll give you two marshmallows. But if you eat this one marshmallow right now, you don't get it. And the kids inevitably, they have no self-control. They eat the marshmallow. You know, there's also part of the study that those that actually do wait are proven to later have better decision-making skills. But let's not talk about those freaks that can stop eating one marshmallow. <laughs> like I don't know what their problem is. Um, so that's a classic example of like the, what self-control is essentially is like we feel that emotion that that we feel connection to now to the temptation of right now that one marshmallow. We don't really think about our future selves, our 10 minutes down the road self. I mean, there are tons of studies showing that like. The, the money has a sort of a diminishing value as farther it gets out in the future, right? If you were to say to someone, would you do something for $100 right now, they're more likely to do it than if it's $100 in a week, even though it's $100. And um, it's because we don't have a connection to our future selves. Uh, we don't feel you know, like we're going to get that pleasure and that temptation satisfied the same way a week, a month you know 30 years in the future which is you know what retirement is um some of that is you know because we think that our future selves are perfect all of us you know I, i'll ask people sometimes to raise their hand if they promised themselves in, in the last week that they were going to go get some exercise and then i said keep your hand up if raising your hand is all the exercise you've ever gotten this week
1: um
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, and tens of millions because like we don't we We think that we're going to be amazing people the next day, right? We go to sleep at night. We're like, tomorrow is the day I do this thing (laughs) and we don't do it. Um, but we think we're going to, it's the same with retirement. We think, you know, on a certain extent, subconsciously or consciously, Oh, you know what? I'll save retirement later. Right now I need to go on this vacation. Uh, right now I need to, to do this thing. Um, so retirement in in many ways is about like a lack of self-control, which is about a lack of connection to our future selves. Um, now, there are a few ways you're talking about solutions and, and our book does have a solution section that our publisher really wanted us to have. And it, it has really resonated with a lot of people. I'm like you, I'm more interested in like the, what's going on and the science behind it. But, you know, we do offer solutions. Uh, and, you know, in general, what we try to do is we try to say, you know, we're not going to tell you, you should put X percent here and Y percent there. Uh, we're not going to try to change human nature. I think that's where a lot of financial literacy fails is to try to make people have self-control in this case. Instead, we're going to try to create systems uh, and environments that sort of take advantage of our human failings instead of having our human failings be something that's taken advantage of. Right? Put us back in control of our falling from relativity and the pain of paying and our lack of self-control. Uh, you know, For retirement, there are tons of studies that that show uh you know people that you know typically in america at least you sign up for your retirement savings when you start a job like you get something called a 401k and you basically check a box do you want to put how much do you want to put aside every paycheck and if you put the default option is you know yes i want to save and i want to save you know a high percent people are more likely to save that high percent than if you put the default option low And part of that is just because like you don't want to think about it or you don't want to go through the pain of thinking in this case. Um, So if you have your default option that people save money for retirement, that's one system that we can make as companies and society to make people save more. Um, A little trick that you can do in that same situation is they found that when when people call their spouse at that moment of decision, just talking about that and thinking about their future makes them save more money. Right? not that the spouses are definitely you know like say yeah you have to save, but it, it helps them connect to their future selves um, there's even a really cool study where when people interact with a virtual reality version of themselves when they're old like they, they take a picture and then they a computer creates this you know 80 year old version of themselves and they have a conversation that makes them s- save more Wow now that's not like a realistic thing that can be you know replicated on a large scale it's just kind of cool Um so you know connecting to our future selves has that impact it it doesn't um you know that does a little bit of changing human nature because we makes us think about ourselves but it doesn't like just say you know have more self-control no it recognizes that we don't have self-control and those you know default opt-in options are recognizing that we're going to take the easy way out when we don't understand things and it's not asking us to give up that one marshmallow right it's not asking us every time to not spend five dollars on a latte it's not asking us to you know forego this vacation it's just making it so it's automatically withdrawn for us right? again it's like that fintech you you can use things create systems that do good for you and pursue good goals um by recognizing these failings and by recognizing human nature um, you know, uh, another one that's sort of similar is people that have trouble with their spending on, on a regular basis. Um, you know, we tend to look at our checking account as our discretionary spending, right? You go to the automatic teller machine, uh, you take out some money, you look at the receipt and you see, you have, you know, $6,000. You're like, oh, okay, that's what I have in general. That's how much money I have. Well, if you create two accounts and from your company, you ask your people giving your paycheck, Hey, put 20% in this other savings account and only you know 80% of my checking, then you can kind of fool yourself. Right? If we stop and think, we know we have this other money, but on that regular, easy basis, we just look at that you know checking account balance as our discretionary spending, and we kind of trick ourselves. Again, I'm not saying we should change human nature and be totally rational beings, but instead we should recognize our irrationality and create systems that take advantage of that to pursue goals that we want
1: brilliant and and you know when you talked about the retirement and that i didn't know about the study with the virtual reality self i thought about you know there's a definition of hell and it's an anonymous quote and it's basically where you meet your future self the self you could have (laughs) been and you see all, all the choices you made the bad choices we haven't touched on half of the brilliant concepts and biases that are covered in this book. Ulysses contracts, for example, ironically, all available on Amazon one click (laughs) in any any country. But um, one of the things that really resonated and I thought was really important to get across is you're a polymath it's a real gift to be able to use disciplines across different fields like you have done now in the world of behavioral science economics etc one of the problems i think in the world and you you touch on this is that people measure everything by its monetary value and oftentimes in this world where people you talk about buying the million dollar house over a five hundred thousand dollar house for example Maybe buying the $500 house means you have more time to put into your family. You spend more time with your kids. It'd be great to touch on that as a finale.
0: Sure. It's a big overarching topic. So I would say that one of my goals in this book is that I recognize that we obsess about money a lot. It provides security. It, it's It's something that we want. Um, but we don't think about how we think about it. So my hope is that by revealing some of the ways we think about money, it reduces some of the mental energy we spend obsessing about it, and then we can therefore have more mental energy to spend on the things that really do matter. And what often happens, as you're correct to point out, is that because we think about money so much, and money seems to be, you know, this common currency, literally, um, it's you know a common good that can be used for anything. We value things back on a monetary level when we can't value it another way and you know the example that i've used in in my life and and i think you're referring to as a a polymath is when i start something new um like i'm starting to write a book or a podcast uh, or the first times i was on tv the people in my life that don't understand sort of how a creative field works or how these fields will say what is what did that pay you um and in my own life, I, I went through stages where like, that really offended me. I was like, it doesn't. it's not about money. You don't understand. And gradually, I, I came to this place where I think it's not that they are, are being mean about it or rude or saying you should make money. It's that they actually don't understand. And, and the only way that they can try to put it in a context that, that matters to them, how they can value it, is to put a monetary label on it. Um, now, for instance, my dad is a physicist. I could find a common language that has to do with physics. I don't know what that, be, you know, like I got on TV. Well, what does that pay? Well, don't think about what it pays, Dad. It's it's as if you got you know funding for six months of lab research. That's something he would understand. But that common language in between is money, uh, because money is so pervasive. Um, you know, so you know, as far as valuing things about money and, and overvaluing um, them, I, I think that's the reason why we do it. It's because many things in life are hard to value, not just financial decisions, but um relationships uh vacations experiences is often hard and knowledge it's hard to value money is also sort of a different side of that same six-sided six-sided die i guess uh we we do tend to um over rely on it when money is a feature uh we talk about because money can be so precise and measurable when something like an iphone has a monetary value attached to it like we will latch on to that monetary value as being the one thing we can compare it to, um, yeah, as opposed to like, oh, this iPhone has all these features, and this you know Google phone has these features, and this um, you know other flip phone has these things that otherwise we can't compare. We over rely on money. At the same time, I don't want to be a critic of it. Money, as I said, has has provided our culture and society so many great things. Uh, I just hope that we can take a deep breath and and stop and think about how money plays a role in our lives um, so that we can really pursue what is important and what has real value, uh, which is to live as rich a life as possible.
1: Beautiful, man. That's a, that's a lovely way to finish it. And I really highly recommend this book. Jeff Kreiser, co-author of the awesome Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. It'd be great to know where people can find out more, because I know you do a lot of global keynote speaking.
0: Sure. My website is the easiest place to start, jeffkreisler, K-R-E-I-S-L-E-R.com. That's my sort of Twitter and and LinkedIn handle, too. And I do tour around. Our book is coming out around the world. Um, I'll be doing events all over the place, Um, you know, have have venue and audience hungry to learn about human nature uh, and the choices we make and the reasons why, and I will be there uh, to share it. Uh, I'm also going to be editing a new website that's coming out called PeopleScience.com, uh, which is about applied behavioral science beyond just in the financial world, but w- motivating um, employees and peers and and loyalty and all this stuff. And I'm I'm really uh, excited to delve into more about behavioral science and share the possibilities uh, that it offers to everyone in every walk of life around the world.
1: I'd love to talk to you when the new book comes out, and hopefully you're in Europe and we can do that one in person. Jeff Kreisler, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks, Ed.